Hello and welcome to this special edition of the IC Companies and Markets podcast. My name's Ian Smith. I'm the company's editor of the IC. Joining me in the podcast today on this very exciting morning is Emma Powell, our news editor. How are you doing, Emma? Yeah, good, thanks. Bit tired. Bit tired. And also uh, my deputy company's editor, Mark Robinson. How are you doing, Mark? I'm fine, Ian. Fresh as a daisy. Fresh as a daisy. Well, I'm not, um, because last night was um, the general election uh, results coming in all through the night. Much more exciting than people had thought. And I think what we found out is that no election was better than a bad election for Theresa May. But Emma, why don't you start us off? Tell us where we are at in terms of the seats, um, in terms of how the parties have done. And then we can talk a little bit about the implications. Yeah. So uh, for once, the exit poll actually uh, seemed to be pretty accurate, uh, which was a shock, I think, about this time, uh, about 11 o'clock last night. So at the minute, we've got Conservatives on 319 seats, Labour on 261, the Scottish National Party on 35, Lib Dem on 12, and the Democratic Unionist Party on 10. Um, And we should say we're recording this uh, podcast at 10 in the morning on Friday, uh, but that's just with one seat left to go, so it's not going to change hardly at all. Um, So it it will be a hung parliament, of course, because you need uh, 326 or 323, given that Sinn Féin don't take up their seats um, in the House of Commons usually. Um, So that's that's, uh, 10 seats lost for the Conservatives and also 19 for the SNP. Uh, But the big winner would be the Labour Party, who've gained, um, well, at least 31 seats, maybe 32 if they get that final seat. Um, Lib Dems actually also did better than expected. They won three seats, although, of course, former leader Nick Clegg did lose his seat. So uh, where do we stand? Conservatives haven't got enough for a majority, but with the support of the DUP, um, the the Unionists in Northern Ireland, they can form a minority government. They can, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a tricky situation because, of course, the whole point of this election was to uh, to kind of strengthen her hand, strengthen Theresa May's hand, and obviously, I think this is um, this is just done nothing but weaken it. So it's looking. I don't know. The, the, the prospect is that they will form a minority government with the DUP propping them up. That's um, difficult in itself, given the kind of caveats that um, Democratic Unionists have already given. The big question this morning um, is whether Theresa May will stay on as Prime Minister. Now, we may well get overtaken by events in that case, but how does that look as we talk now? Well, she said that she has no intention of of resigning, and obviously that is still a live situation, so you never know. Um, She said she she intends to stay as Prime Minister um, or as leader of the party. Um, It's quite interesting. It was an interesting tweet which keeps getting uh, kind of flagged this morning um, that she did admittedly on the 19th of May, which was very early. And obviously they had a big uh, lead in the polls then, um, which, which she said, if I lose just six seats, I will lose this election and Jeremy Corbyn will be sitting down to negotiate with Europe. Obviously, probably regrets making that statement now, although she did make that quite early on. At a time where they had much more of a poll lead. Exactly. But Mark, that Brexit negotiations is where everyone's mind is turning towards. And that's expected to kick off on the 19th of June. What do you think uh, people are thinking right now in terms of uh, the impact on the UK's bargaining strength in that negotiation? Well, you know, it rather depends on um, what your political perspective was uh, prior to the election. It obviously um, weakens the UK hand. I mean, uh, they need the government to go in there with a unified stance. Um, You know, the the negotiations were always likely to be difficult enough uh, as they were. But uh, 
with uh, there's every chance that Westminster will sort of now enter um, a period of uh, paralysis, and it's going to make it uh, all the more difficult uh, in the run up to the. Uh, uh, the negotiations itself because we can't rule out and we, we shouldn't rule out having another election if uh, the the right deal can't be done it maybe looks in, unlikely at this point we we could be seeing an, an, a rerun of the election well i was just trying to remember the last time that we ran effectively with a minority government in the united kingdom i think you'd have to go back to the 1970s uh, i think um and it presents you know, any number of problems just in the day-to-day running of westminster and and whitehall for that matter um there, we're going to obviously see a lot of political posturing in the days and weeks to come as well, because obviously this plays into the um, uh, this plays into the hands of people that want us to remain in the European Union or those calling for uh, a second referendum. Uh, but um, you know, it's obviously very early days at this point. One interesting line that's come out relevant to what you're saying is um, the Democratic Unionists have been saying that they will support a Conservative government if Northern Ireland is not uh, guaranteed any kind of unique special status in the Brexit deal that would keep the region kind of inside the EU um, to kind of... um, ease the situation in Ireland. Now, that's a line that's coming out of The Guardian. So one implication that that the election could have on the Brexit negotiations is that although it's a a weakened government, um, the deal that would have to be done between the Tories and the DUP would, um, you know, in some ways harden Brexit. That's one side of the argument. Uh, yeah, but the the contra argument runs as well that um, b- because of the uh, the standing as far as the seats go, there are enough Conservative MPs who are pro Remain who would force the issue of uh, uh, of a more meaningful uh, secondary vote going before uh, Parliament when the eventual terms of Brexit uh, are crystallised. And that's how a lot of commentators are seeing this election, Emma. That it's a rejection of Theresa May's approach for Brexit as set out in the Conservative Manifesto where she reiterated that no deal was better better than a bad deal, that immigration would be the sine qua non for um, Conservative priorities um, and that the UK's um, the UK's government had accepted leaving the single market and the customs union um, and renegotiating terms of a trade deal. So some people are saying that approach has been rejected. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you can't deny that Brexit overshadowed all the campaigns didn't it really um and people aligned kind of uh theresa may very much with this kind of hard brexit um style i think so i think yeah definitely the kind of vote um the weakening of her position is definitely reflective of that kind of approach what do we think of the the market reaction to um the election um, because obviously there were people in the market that were saying both things one that Eurosceptic the Eurosceptic wing of the Tory party could be empowered especially if Theresa May had to step down and that actually part of the reason for calling this election was to strengthen her hand to allow her some a strength in parliament to be able to kind of stand down the or face down the uh, the more uh, right wing MPs within her own party and in some ways this emboldens the right wing and other people as you've um, said um, think that actually this kind of strengthens the House of Commons hand. Vince Cable who was re-elected said that it's going to be very hard to pass things like the Great Repeal Bill through Parliament uh, in the way that the Conservatives have wanted to do so. So House of Commons, the, the makeup of that and the impact of that in Brexit is, is different. And we've seen both views expressed in the marketplace by um, investment bank uh, strategists and fund managers. Um, but what we have seen and what we saw from the 
very publication of the exit poll was a uh, fall in the value of sterling again. Yeah, there was a dip in the pound, um, unsurprisingly. But then I think it's not like you could compare these reactions to what we see, what we saw after the referendum result. It's nowhere near. Well, there, um, there's much the same with the um, uh, election result in America as well. And whether that just indicates that uh, managed money, um, except that they overreacted um, following the EU referendum vote and their reaction has um, been muted as a result. Yeah, I I mean, it did seem to move sharply down when people thought that Jeremy Corbyn might have a chance of moving through the door of number 10. And then when people started to question the exit poll, Sterling started to come back. Now, obviously, you can put far too much stock in um, the market forces reflections or your idea of what the market's trying to say. Um, but there definitely was kind of a weakening there. But obviously, that's not necessarily a bad thing for UK companies. And we've seen a similar pattern in terms of the equity market moves this morning that we saw after the referendum, albeit not half, uh, not, not to the same degree. Yeah, exactly. It's not surprising that um, house builders, I think Cress Nicholson is the biggest faller, um, around 5%. Um, then a lot of the kind of more domestic facing banks like Lloyd's and RBS and things like that, they've seen the biggest... Um, the biggest falls. But then, of course, the companies with more dollar-denominated earnings have been the biggest risers. Um, we've got um, quite a lot of kind of Ashmore Group, uh, Emerging Markets, Focus Asset Manager. And a lot um, of the commodity stocks. a lot stocks. of the miners and things like that and the commodity stocks. I think that's quite mechanistic, isn't it? That, you know, that the, earning, the dollar earners are going to rise. I mean, the fallers are interesting to look at because... They reflect some concerns around the economic health of the UK, particularly consumer demand. So the house builders, some of the um, retail stocks um, and also companies that are exposed to the UK corporate sector. Um, But as we saw after the referendum, that actually provided a great opportunity for some people to buy into these stocks, which have been very highly valued. Um, And some people... uh, did dramatically well was because some of these house builders have done a lot of work since the uh, financial crash to build up their capital levels, pay out high dividends. You could say the same of Lloyd's, for example, um, and that's another stock that fell, I wouldn't say heavily this morning, but fell sharply and then kind of recovered a little bit. So there will be a lot of buyers in the market as well. They'll be taking advantage of politically driven moves. Yeah, w- without a doubt. I mean, but the, the one caveat is, and I'm sure that we'd all agree on this, is that we've been looking at valuations for FTSE 350 companies over the last uh, uh, 10 months or so, and they're in no way justified by uh, underlying earnings from a historical perspective. So we're all trying to work out if there's a a new standard uh, uh, price earnings ratio that's being applied across the board now. There's some debate about that, but uh, if anyone, any of our listeners out there has any idea if that's the case, and please get in contact with us. Yeah, definitely. How it reflects on the yeah that whole that live valuation debate is really interesting. Um, now we want to move on the discussion a little bit and say, well, we can't predict, especially not at this point, what will be the outcome of this um, hung parliament. Um, whether Theresa May will be able to cobble together um, the seats that she needs and maintain her leadership, um, and really the firm impact on Brexit. But what we could look at is the areas where there are overlap between Labour and Tories. I would say, I'd postulate that some of the more extreme or less popular things within the Tory manifesto amongst their own party, such as things like grammar schools, might be less likely in the case where they only they don't have a majority and they're reliant on the DUP, for example. But there are other areas where there is kind of full consensus in the, across the political spectrum 
that there needs to be uh, work done. So both the Labour and, and Tory manifesto address this question of productivity. And Mark, in this week's uh, issue, you wrote the cover feature, which is solving the Brexit puzzle and having a look at the Tories' industrial strategy and how it was supposed to be getting the UK economy moving. Well, unfortunately, that uh, Brexit puzzle has just become all the more complex or or more likely we won't be um, getting into any uh, meaningful negotiations for a delayed period now. But then again, that's just conjecture as well. we, We don't know the eventual uh, uh, political settlement so we'll have to wait on that in that regard but uh, do you think we can accept that if the tories want to bring forward um, their national productivity investment fund um, that they will find some support you would hope or think among labor who have their own proposal in their manifesto for a national transformation fund and some of the areas of investment are exactly the same well exactly i mean there's no doubt that uh, it would be an easier um, bill to pass through parliament than uh, some of the other pieces of legislation that are um, uh, the point of contention at the moment i mean the the difficulty i had when i came to uh, write this piece along with our man in sicily uh, dan liberto is that uh, it's such a, a broad subject and uh, uh, and of course, uh, our sainted ed- editor John Human, who's off on his sabbatical at the moment, is studying for his master's degree in industrial history. And so every week I was uh, presented with a, a new scenario. And so, um, I, in the end, I just settled upon the um, uh, the issues of productivity in the United Kingdom and also the issue of tariffs. They mightn't seem like they're inter- interrelated, but they are. Um, and uh, what I wanted to express as well, amongst uh, above anything else, is that. Uh, Depending on how the Brexit negotiations went in the weeks and months, we'd be able to present some sort of coherent uh, narrative for our readers about which sectors are likely to be impacted because we tend to think that the negotiations, when they do um, get into chain, uh, will be on a drip-drip basis, sector by sector, and with profound implications for some uh, sectors, less so for others. Uh, so over the last year or so since the vote we've um, we've assiduously avoided um, uh, comment for brexit for brexit's sake because we it would just be pure speculation for the most part i suspect after last night's result we'll be kicking that can down the road uh, a little further uh, until a political settlement but our readers would all be aware that it whatever happens it's it's going to have um, an, an effect on their portfolios what do you think uh, in broad terms would be the impact of um, a very disruptive Brexit in terms of say high trade barriers uh, being erected between the UK and the single market on what the Tories want to do in terms of the industrial strategy? Well it, again it rather depends I mean if if we were to um, crash out of uh, uh, the single market altogether or at least um, uh, under the terms that we operate in at the moment, uh, some sectors would face major challenges, uh, principally agriculture, because uh, let's not forget the European Union is a political project rather than an economic one. And this is reflected in the um, in the, uh, the the tariff mechanisms that are in play at the moment. So obviously, the, the one of the highest barriers is agriculture, because... Uh, uh, it's a trade-off with the, the French rural sector and also, uh, to a certain degree, Germany and uh, Italy as well. Uh, whereas other areas um, uh, within the UK economy, such as uh, uh, financial services and our service sector, are relatively untouched by uh, this mechanism at the moment. However, um, uh, that's changing because part of the um, EU's 
current political thrust is to bring in more regulation and more uniformity uh, in these areas. And a lot of this is going to be through qualified uh, majority voting as well. Uh, so it's going to obviously lessen the influence of, uh, of the city in that regard. Um, I think the average tariff rate, though, if we were going to go on WTO, as uh, other nations uh, operate in the European Union, is only about 6%. And I was talking to some of the people in Churchill, China, a while back, who um very successful company, UK uh, Potter, actually. It's a, it's a redolent of our industrial heritage. And uh, they were saying that they, may, they don't see it as a real issue because I think the average tariff rate they'd have to deal with, say, is 6%. And at that time, the pound had fallen by 15%. Mm. So... Uh, they were in a, a pretty sweet spot. I mean, some companies are more concerned around friction in the custom, like leaving the customs union, than they are around tariffs, right? If you look at retailers, importers like AO World, they've said things that slow down that process are worse for us. Um, then, in the, obviously, all tariffs are also very difficult, um, but you know, prices can, in some instances, be passed on. Well, prices in most instances are passed on. I mean, that's the whole point about tariffs. I mean, the the person that pays the tariffs, eventually we talk about in terms of abstract terms about the UK government, um, and the UK economy, uh, or the EU administration, but actually it's the U, it's the European Union consumer that picks up the tabs for the mm. tariffs. I mean, it's... Uh, uh, even um, left-leaning um, economists like Joseph Stiglitz have uh, pointed this out, and it seems uh, self-evident, really. So what what effectively you have with a tariff regime is that it distorts um, investment decisions, distorts capital flows, uh, very often in favour of inefficient industries. And uh, many of the, as I mentioned before, many of the uh, many of the uh, many of the decisions underlining these tariffs are, are political based uh, rather than anything that's based in uh, economics. It also uh, flies in the face of standard economic theory when you look at the division of labour as well. Uh, the presumption that uh, some areas within the economy, some national economies, some sectors are actually uh, better and more efficient at producing goods and services than others. And uh, tariffs um, stand in the way of this mechanism. Yeah. I mean, it's fair to say that the parties... In, in in, there is agreement in certain areas like broadband, like uh, transport infrastructure, that there should be large-scale investment. Um, we've had those promises for a long time, right? But would you agree with me that when it when it comes to Brexit, there are, and the status of UK companies and corporation tax, there is quite a big difference between the parties. I mean, obviously, Labour is saying we will reverse the decreases in corporation tax if we were to get into government. Um, And their vision for the corporate sector is taxing big businesses quite a lot more heavily. Their vision for Brexit is to uh, prioritise jobs um, and you'd imagine to compromise in other areas, whereas the Conservatives have been quite clear that what they want to do is further reduce corporation tax um, and to have certain things such as immigration in the in the negotiations that they're more set on so the question being if they the what's i suppose what some people think is behind the no deal is better than a bad deal is that they believe that they the uk can go its own way as a low tax um country and destination for corporates these are two quite different although for two parties that have um, a similar vision in terms of the investment they want in the corporate sector. They've got quite different uh, images about uh, the taxation environment they want um, and what their priorities are with regard to Europe. Would you agree with that? Yeah, but, I mean, this, there's no doubt within this election we've had a, um, a clear uh, a dichotomy um, in, in terms of uh, policy outlooks. I mean, 
what I mentioned uh, in the feature as well, and it's 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 plainly obvious. It's one of the key economic questions is the the degree to which governments intervene in the economy, and obviously um, uh, Jeremy Corbyn uh, and the Shadow Char- Chancellor believe in a government that plays a much larger role in the econo- economy. In fact, you know you could say that they uh, believe in a planned economy uh, to a large extent. Um, this fits in to a certain degree with what happens in Europe now under, under the current uh, tariff mechanism. Um, but I, I'm, I'm not sure that people in the United Kingdom uh, voted in terms of pure economic policy. I think people were voted exactly. because they uh, because they can't get jobs, their children can't get housing, uh, there's stagnant economic growth in many parts of the country. We often miss this in London, but there's, there's a huge swathe of the country which for 30 40 50 years now um have seen a, a drain of their youth because there's no uh, regional no um effective regional development and um i, I think voters would look at least look to uh, jeremy corbyn's policies as being uh, sympathetic to that uh, view although I, i'm not quite sure um uh, increasing corporation taxes is um it would be a key component to uh, creating jobs. I think dichotomy is the key word because what this election has left us is no endorsement of any party's policies, Emma, right? Um, there's No party has won a majority. So like you say, Jeremy Corbyn's brand of Labour, which is more interventionist, which is uh, has more kind of traditional left-wing ideas around um, yeah, the organisation of uh, the economy, um, has not had a full endorsement. Uh, and neither has Theresa May's um, kind of proposals for how she'll run the Brexit negotiations. And how she'd reform the economy. I think, I think what was disappointing about um, uh, the Conservative manifesto this time around is a lack of ambition. Uh, it, it seemed to be um, uh, tinkering at, at the margins, and and people just picked up uh, policy areas um, and distorted them. I mean, the the, the so-called dementia tax as well uh, seemed to me an absurd absurd debate. Uh, the way yeah, and we don't going. know how much that hurt them. Emma, what's your, what are your thoughts? You're definitely right. It's not a it's not a real endorsement of anyone's policies. Um, it's interesting though um, that I think you wrote a taking stock, didn't you, um, prior to the election about the whole issue of actually there was some overlap also between some of their policies. If you think about it, yeah, I mean it's fairly. I mean on the point of intervention, while I completely agree with Mark that. Um, the Conservatives went no way as far as uh, the Labour Party in terms of how much they would intervene in the corporate sector or or indeed bring it back into the public uh, sector. Um, There are overlaps when it comes to takeovers. The Conservatives um, wanted to legally enforce pre-deal promises made by companies taking over other companies. Um, Labour wanted to protect workers and pensioners during a a takeover situation. When it comes to pay, both parties wanted to strengthen corporate governance rules. There is overlap, but there is also the Labour kind of nationalisms and wanting to bring the Royal Mail back in, there were kind of extras. I mean, one area where there has been overlap that has been much discussed is energy. Well, yeah, exactly. Um, it's funny, actually, today the or this morning, the uh, share prices of Centrica and SSE are up slightly, I think, by about 2 or 3%, obviously because one of the policies kind of suggested in the in the Labour manifesto was this idea of re-nationalising um, the utility companies and, and, you know, the energy companies, which would have uh, created a lot of uncertainty for investors in those companies in terms so of that how political that would have risk, happened. So that political risk has... Has been averted, yeah. But then at the same time, I mean, when the Conservatives came out and said that they were considering an energy price cap, that 
really, really put a dampener on the share prices of um, particularly a company like Centrica because they're a customer facing company now with British Gas. Obviously, it's uncertain now because it looks we've got a hung parliament. But I don't think people should forget that actually that's still a threat to energy companies and things like that. There's consensus in certain areas. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think what's what's interesting as well, uh, a point that Jeremy Corbyn made in the lead up to the election, he says that the, 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 his campaign had changed the nature of political discourse in the United Kingdom. And I think we sort of uh, may have taken that with a pinch of salt at the time, but he, he may well have a point because when you look at uh, certain of the, the privatised industries as well, uh, that um, receive very little in the way of uh, public support and don't seem to have had any major benefits for the consumer. And I, I'm thinking here of the, the power companies themselves mm. and, and the transportation network too. This, uh, these type of uh, industries affect um, uh, people on, a, on an everyday basis and they've been wholly unsatisfied unsatisfactory in terms of the free market because you've effectively got oligopolies working within a constrained pricing uh, network where even their investment is constrained by uh, preset parameters. So these these have been unsatisfactory from the point of view of a sort of red in uh, tooth and claw capitalist, but also from a, a socialist perspective. And you don't have to, to your point there, um, people are probably not looking at the economic policies uh, across the board as a major voting um, motivation. But people can reflect on their rail service and they can reflect on the energy prices they are having to pay. I mean, I we, think... were, we were supposed to reflect upon the banks uh, after 2007, 2008, but uh, that was just given lip service, really. Which parts of the economy are parts of the productive economy and which uh, components are there to serve the productive economy. I think the cost of living debate actually, I mean, you know, we can say that, that the average kind of voter doesn't look across every economic policy, but I think particularly with rail, and I'd argue actually more with energy pricing, that whole cost of living debate is kind of matters to everybody and particularly people that are really squeezed. Interestingly, Theresa May early on in her leadership um started talking about the just about managings um, and really tar- trying to target them um, and things like the energy uh, price cap they wanted to bring in was to directly address that cost of living debate that you've um, identified. What the election suggests is that they haven't been as successful doing that as Jeremy Corbyn, who has stressed things like the strength of public services. Yeah, and if you look at if you look at headlines, kind of um, in the later part of the election campaign, it was definitely you know there was there was a division between people didn't see didn't align Theresa May. I think most people would agree they didn't align um, Theresa May with with addressing the just about managings. It was definitely um, kind of the Jeremy Corbyn and some of their policies. Um, at the same time, Conservatives got. Uh, the largest number of seats they got the largest share of the public vote and in some ways i think we compare it to when they were at a 20 percentage point lead in the polls um but we shouldn't compare it to that we should say which party has the right to form the government after the election so jeremy corbyn coming out and saying we all know who won this election it's quite hard to look at this result and say that the labor party won this election yeah i mean you've got to look at it relatively haven't you of course the labor party hasn't won this election So basically, we're making ourselves complete hostages to fortune uh, because this is very much a moving piece. 
Yeah, of course, because it is still a live situation. Okay, Ace, and I just quickly want to talk about um, one of the stories that's in the issue, which we haven't really discussed at all, um, with the exception of Mark's excellent feature, which is Shawbrook, um, which is an interesting one. We talked about the the outlook for domestic banking. Um, Shawbrook is a bank where um, the majority of its loan book is property, finance, mortgages, and, and buy-to-let mortgages, and second-charge mortgages as well. Um and also a bit of asset finance to businesses and a little bit of consumer finance. And it's had takeover offer and a revised takeover offer. And now this is, this is the final offer, isn't it, uh, from its majority shareholder. Uh, where, what are we thinking at the moment about this? Yeah, so the, the so the latest news is basically Pollen Street Capital, which has a 38.8% um, share in the company, along with BC partners um so as part of a consortium have made a fourth and they say final offer now um and they've raised their offer to 340p a share up from 330p a share which is interesting in itself just because the last two offers um that they stuck with the 330p said we're not going to increase it now they have what value does that put on the assets yeah, so it's valued at around 1.9 times net tangible assets. Expected. Um, expected. Uh, so that's expected for 2017. Um, that's a that's a premium to Aldermore, which I'd say is its its kind of closest peer, which is around 1.2 times um, forecast net tangible assets. But a discount to One Savings Bank, which I'd say also was you know a very similar company, which is at about 2.1 times. So it is a decent premium to its uh, net tangible assets. And it's an interesting deal because their majority shareholder is saying they want to take the company into private ownership in order to grow it more slowly and more prudently than management are currently planning. Yeah, they've said they've said Shawbrook, they they are growing prudently, but actually um, given the growth targets they set out earlier this year, they think they're gonna basically gonna have to revise those because if they want to maintain writing risk at an appropriate price um, and lending prudently, actually they are gonna have to um, probably grow at a slower rate. So but as Shawbrook have said, we can grow within our um, risk controls and we can still grow at the rate that we've said but it's an interesting decision the the Shawbrook investor has to decide whether that premium adequately compensates them for the risk of holding on to that um, stock Uh, if they don't if they think that's undervalued then are they being quite bullish about the state of uh, that loan book and how it might be impacted from further um, weakening in the property sector yeah, so there's well, there's actually a couple of things to note here. So, firstly, yes, obviously they're in um, buy to let lending, and they do have exposure to domestic UK economy, very very concentrated. And so, if there is any weakening there, obviously they could stand to suffer a lot. And after the referendum, they were one of the companies uh, that really suffered in terms of share price. Of course, that has rebounded slightly now. Um, and the second thing to note to note is that. Uh, the consortium bidding for the company has actually said if we get over 50% acceptances, but we don't get 75%, so if we're somewhere in the middle, we would consider um, keeping it as a listed company. Mm. Um, so I guess that adds another layer of complexity for investors in terms of if they do get over 50%, keep it as a listed entity. Um, Not to mention that these kind of takeover targets just got a little bit cheaper, depending on what assets you're using to buy them. Well, this is, this is true as well. It would have been quite interesting if uh, Jeremy Corbyn did form a government as well in terms of the u- utilities that he intends on privatising, uh, you know, just by his uh, 
by his intent alone that would make him cheaper for the public purse. Yeah, it's been almost a little bit boring from our perspective. We could have had some crazy share price moves um, if uh, La- uh, Labour got closest to number 10. Well, that's it. I mean, it'd be interesting. A week from now, we, we might have a very different perspective as well. Who can say? But stories like Shawbrook will uh, continue regardless of who gets through the door of number 10 or stays uh, within the door of number 10. Um, well, that's all we have time for on this special edition of the Companies and Markets show. Thanks, Mark, for joining me. Thanks, Emma. Thanks, Dom, in the control room. Uh, a lot of people with um, some bags under their eyes and fueling themselves on coffee but it's been an absolutely fascinating night uh, and we'll obviously keep in touch with the impact on uh, listed companies uh, but I think it's fair to say not quite as um, apocalyptic a situation as the uh, referendum and there's plenty more in the magazine which I haven't even got to which is terrible of me but it's £4.90 Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. In all decent news agents, go out and have a look.